So one day, Jesus and his disciples head out towards a nearby synagogue. To get there, they walk through a grain field, followed, of course, by the crowds. I mean, I I hope they all went single file or this whole field is going to be destroyed. But as they go along, the disciples just kind of pick some of the heads of grain to munch on because they're hungry. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, look, your disciples are breaking the law. So this must be something they've like come up with, one of the many rules they've added, because it's not actually against Mosaic law to do this. They aren't stealing because the law specifically allows you to pick kernels from someone else's field with your hands. You can't go after it with a sickle, but you can pick, you know, kernels. You can pick handfuls of stuff. That is explicitly allowed in the law. So what they must be objecting to is not that the disciples are picking grain, but that picking grain is work and it was a Sabbath day. But surely they know this is a stretch. Grabbing a handful of seeds because you're hungry hardly constitutes work. You're allowed to eat on the Sabbath. But this just goes to show how strict the Pharisees have become and how narrow they've become in their thinking. Jesus stops and says, you read the story of David and his men? Now, Jesus has a good point here. Back when David was running for his life from King Saul, he had to flee the king's court without food or provisions. And he runs to the nearby town where the tabernacle is set up. And he lies to the high priest, telling him, oh, King Saul has sent me on a very urgent secret mission. And I had to leave with no supplies and no weapons. And the priest is like, where are your men? And David's like, Oh, uh, they went on ahead and they're waiting on me to bring them food. And he asked the priest for food and weapons. And the priest says, well, I got nothing but the consecrated bread that lay out before the Lord on the table of presents yesterday in the tabernacle. Now, I have replaced it with fresh bread. This is the yesterday's bread, but you know that no one except priests are supposed to eat it. I'm. I may be able to bend the rules a little and give you the day old bread, but only if your men have stayed ritually clean and have abstained from sex. And David lies through his teeth and says, oh yeah, we're ritually clean. We always abstain from sex before a mission. (laughs) So, So the priest gives him the holy bread. And Jesus reminds the Pharisees of this story and that David not only took and ate the consecrated bread, but he gave some to his men when he met up with them. So Jesus reminds them not only of the famous King David doing this, but he reminds them that the very priests in the temple today have to work on the Sabbath to prepare the daily sacrifices. So technically, if you want to be technical about this, the priests themselves violate this very Sabbath rule every week, and yet they are innocent. (laughs) The Pharisees can't argue with that. Jesus isn't done yet. Jesus continues. He says, I say to you, 
something greater even than the temple is right here in front of you. If you knew what the prophet Hosea meant when he said that God desires mercy, not sacrifice, you wouldn't even be making these ridiculous accusations. The son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the son of man is what Jesus has been calling himself publicly. So he is naming himself here. They, this is clear to everybody. And the word Lord here just means it's like the normal word for Lord, master, absolute owner. It doesn't mean God. What it's saying is the son of man owns the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, don't make burdens out of blessings. A Sabbath rest every week is intended as a blessing from God, not a burden. Well, that shuts the Pharisees up for the moment, and everybody troops into the synagogue, which they have reached by now. And there in the synagogue is a man with a shriveled hand. I love the account in Luke's gospel. The Pharisees are keeping a close eye on Jesus to see if, after the exchange on the way, he will dare to heal this man on a Sabbath. Healing would definitely qualify as work. Trying to trap Jesus, they say, so is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, hold my beer. Oh, he doesn't actually say those words, but that's exactly the sense of what happens next. Jesus calls the man up front and looks straight at the Pharisees and says, any one of you would pull your sheep out of a pit if it fell in on a Sabbath. A person is worth far more than any sheep. And he tells the man, stretch out your hand. And when the man stretches out his hand, it's completely healed and just as strong and healthy as his other hand. The Pharisees do not rejoice at this incredible healing, nor will they acknowledge this huge billboard from God that Jesus is telling them the truth. No, the Pharisees go out and begin plotting how they might trap and kill Jesus. Jesus fears for his life and goes into hiding. Uh, nope, that's not what happens at all. Jesus makes no attempt to hide. In fact, the next time he comes up against these guys, he says, my father is always doing his work, which we, of course, now know is healing people and restoring them. That's like the whole purpose of why Jesus is here. That's the good news. And Jesus says, my father is always doing his work, even on the Sabbath. Therefore, I am working too. Well, this makes everything worse. I mean, he's saying God works on the Sabbath. It's, he's saying he's working on the Sabbath. He's blatantly and clearly calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. The Pharisees argue with him some more, but Jesus tells them, I'm nothing in myself. He's, he's saying like, you're attacking the wrong thing here. I can only do what the father shows me to do. I just do what I see the father doing. And this is just the start. 
<laughs> they don't like this, they sure aren't going to like what happens next. He says, the father gives life and raises people from the dead. So the son can do this also. The father doesn't judge anyone. Let's pause right there. We are in the middle of a big theological discourse, so we know it's coming from the Gospel of John rather than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So some of John's material may be original theological ideas. We as Christians have, of course, canonized these concepts, but let's think how they land on the Pharisees as brand new ideas. We've learned God's justice is full of mercy and has the goal of setting all things right. So if God is not going to judge anyone, how are things going to be set right? This slide may be one of the most important slides in all of my classes, in all of my lessons. The Father does not judge anyone. Jesus says that, all right? So how are things going to be set right? Jesus goes on saying, the father doesn't judge anyone. He has given all judgment to the son. Okay, that's pretty cool. Based on what we've learned about Jesus so far, I would be so glad to be judged by Jesus. Think how gentle and kind he has been, how quick to forgive. He has not meted out one single punishment. But why would God do this? Why would he turn over judgment to Jesus? Jesus says, it's so everyone will honor the son just as they honor the father. Now, I expect those are fighting words for the Pharisees, but this is simply Jesus insisting once again that he is the Messiah, the one sent by God, and they need to realize that. If they reject Jesus in this moment, they are rejecting God. Then Jesus tells the Pharisees what kind of judge he's going to be. He says, I say, if you can hear me and believe God, then you already have eternal life. There is no judgment for you. You have already crossed over. From death to life. So, wow. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Jesus isn't going to, uh, God isn't going to judge anyone. And Jesus says, well, if you just hear me and believe that God wants to bless you and love you and be with you and heal you and fill you with life, you're all, you already have eternal life. <laughs> there is no judgment. You've, you 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 have you have crossed from death which you were living in into life now already i want you all to hear this message so badly that there is no like future thing that's going to fall on your heads these this is what jesus says and his words take precedence over everybody as far as i'm concerned anyway and this you know this can be Sometimes really difficult for Christians who have been raised in a guilt or fear-based environment. 
And if this describes your upbringing, then soak in these words of Jesus. There is no judgment for you. You are living an eternal life right now. The Pharisees' mouths must have been hanging open because Jesus says, don't marvel at this. A time is coming when everyone, even those already dead, will hear the son's voice and will come out of their graves. Well, that pretty much puts the Sadducees in their place. They don't believe in a bodily resurrection, but Jesus is clearly coming down on the side of a wholesale resurrection, afterlife, all of that stuff. Jesus says, those who have done good, what is good will rise to the resurrection of life. Now, according to Strong's Concordance, that word for good is the most generic, widest possible version of the word in Greek. Jesus is painting this in the broadest possible terms. And it makes sense that if you live your life in life, rooted in life, being life-giving in your deeds, that your resurrection will will just continue this. Your resurrection is a continuation of your living. But what about those who do not do good, but rather do evil in their lives? Well, Jesus says, those who have done what is evil will rise to the resurrection of judgment. And some translations actually use the word condemnation here, that they'll rise to the resurrection of condemnation. But the Greek word here is the word normally used for judgment, not condemnation. There are other Greek words typically used for condemnation. The word here is more like being weighed in the balance or evaluated by a court. It doesn't say punishment, it says judgment. It means the evil done by these folks will be seen for what it is. We all know from experience that what evildoers fear the most is having their secrets revealed, right? We see that play out today in our in our modern world and i read in this statement so much mercy towards those who have done what is evil their deeds will no longer carry power or weight but will be seen as the destructive and dangerous chaff that they actually are and it will have no longer have any power over us. We will all be free of it. God's justice will not let their deeds destroy them or us anymore. And that's my interpretation. You're welcome to, you know, read this how you wish. I'm I'm giving you what I think it says. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, don't just take my word for this. You know, there must be more than one witness, you know, in any court. If you bring testimony, you have to have you know more than one witness. And he says, John the Baptist also bore witness to me. And you believed him for, for a little while. And now I call a third witness in addition to myself and to John. I call as witness the works I am doing. The works I am tasked with bringing to full strength. These very works also testify that the Father has sent me. These works are the testimony of the Father himself. And still, you do not believe me. It is obvious 
that you have never even glimpsed God, nor does his word dwell within you. You study the writings so carefully, thinking you will find eternal life there. Those very writings also testify about me. But still, you refuse to come to me to receive life. I know you. I know you do not have the love of God in your hearts. You'll accept anyone but me. You'll glorify each other before you seek the glory that comes only from God. Nevertheless, I will not accuse you before the Father. Wow, look at that. This is typical Jesus, right? If Jesus, God has given Jesus judgment and Jesus is, I'm not even going to accuse you, Pharisees. <laughs> He's not going to be the one who accuses even this very group that will ultimately kill him, even this very group that is placing horrible burdens on the people, even this very group that is actively working to stifle God's blessings, Jesus will not accuse them before God. No, says Jesus, it will be Moses who is your accuser. If you believed him, you would believe me because he too wrote about me. Okay, when Jesus says this, this is a bigger deal than you might think. Back in Deuteronomy 18, Moses tells the Israelites that God has promised to raise a prophet like Moses from among the Israelites. Um, God says, I will Put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him to. So this is God speaking to Moses. God is way, way, way back out in the wilderness. Moses doesn't even make it to the promised land. So, you know, they're in the wilderness here. And God says to Moses, I'm going to raise a prophet just like you from the Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth and he'll tell them everything. Well, ever since then, the Israelites have understood that not only Elijah must come, but a prophet like Moses must come too. So both things, Elijah and Moses, are wrapped up with the coming of the Messiah in the understanding of the Israelites from the Hebrew Bible. John the Baptist was Elijah, and now Jesus is telling them explicitly that he himself is the prophet like Moses. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> we don't get to hear what the reaction was that Jesus got from the Pharisees. All we know is that after this, Jesus leaves to go back to Galilee. Jesus lives in Capernaum right now. You know that his hometown is Nazareth. And he's going back to visit his friends in Cana, probably the same friends or relatives who ran out of wine when they got married, right? And the people are all so glad to see him. John is the only writer who tells this particular story, and he places it right after Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. So where John places these stories is a little different than how Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, so I'm, I'm trying to follow Matthew, Mark, and Luke's kind of general timeline, and I'm just sticking John's stories in where they, where they pop up. Um, 
And I want to say about the Samaritan woman at the well, when, when I taught that lesson a while back, I uh, said that he had commanded her to give him water, which he did. It was in the imperative. But I also want to point out that that in Greek, the imperative is also used for questions. So when you see interpretations that say he asked her politely for a cup of water, that's, you know, that's just as good. And I've been meaning to make that correction for a while now and haven't. Sorry. Anyway, on with the story. New story. This story, um, the story about the Samaritan lady was all about living water, never running dry. And since John's writing is focused on theology, theological themes, not the chronology, we expect that this story will be about life as well, because he's grouped it with this, the living water for the Samaritan woman. We'd expect him, John, to keep talking about a theme of life, and we'd be exactly right. Here's what happens. There's a royal official living over in Capernaum, and his son has fallen gravely ill. The man can't risk waiting for Jesus to get home. The situation is dire. So he himself travels to Cana to catch up with Jesus. And the royal official begs Jesus to come heal his son. And Jesus says, oh, good grief. You folks won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. Now that seems sort of callous. But Jesus is human. He's tired. It's time for lunch. These crowds have followed him and pressed in on him, and they don't seem to be as interested in listening to what he's saying as they are in the miracles he's doing. They are in love with the idea of billboards from God, but they are failing to comprehend what the billboards are saying. Nevertheless, the official son is dying, and the father will not be put off no matter how rude or tired Jesus might be. And he begs Jesus, please, sir, please come before my son dies. And Jesus is apparently too tired to do that. He just says, go, your son will live. And the official believes Jesus and turns around and heads home. It's a two-day journey. On the second day, before he even reaches Capernaum, the man's servants meet him with the good news that his son is alive and getting better. And when the man asks uh, what time his son got better, they tell him yesterday the fever left him at one in the afternoon. And the official realizes that was exactly when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And because of this great billboard from God, this royal official and everyone in his household believe. As you can imagine, the crowds grow around Jesus and become more and more insistent. People bring their sick loved ones from all over Galilee, Judea, Idumea, Tyre, and Sidon. It's interesting that Samaria is not mentioned. Although I feel sure at least some Samaritans are following Jesus, but Samaria has a rival form of Judaism, and the Samaritans are seen as the worst kind of apostates. So perhaps that is why they are omitted from Mark's list. 
By the time Jesus reaches the Sea of Galilee, the crowds are so heavy that Jesus warns his disciples to get a boat ready so he can keep from being crushed by the crowd. It is complete chaos. Jesus is healing people. Sick people are trying to touch him. When unclean spirits see him, they cry out, son of God, you are the son of God. Mark says Jesus orders the unclean spirits to keep this a secret. But we know that the, the, this whole keeping it a secret thing is part of Mark's theme. It's a literary device Mark uses to propel his story forward and tie it together. At the beginning of his gospel, Mark lets his readers in on the secret that Jesus is the Son of God. Then he tells the first half of the story such that the secret is teased but not revealed. And in the second half of the story, the secret finally becomes clearer and clearer until even the Romans know that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark's story is X-shaped like the letter chi in Greek with the sequence of events in the first half corresponding to the sequence of events in the second half. This is a common literary form called a chiasm. So Mark makes a big deal out of how the secret that Jesus is the Son of God gets revealed. He uses this secret all the way through his gospel. And in Mark's gospel, all these references to a secret make perfect sense. But Luke just copies in stories from Mark right along with the references to keeping things secret. So in Luke's gospel, these references to secrets don't make sense at all. So whenever you see this, look to see which gospel you are in. And remember, it doesn't mean Jesus was being confusing or actually trying to keep the good news a secret. It's all stemming from Mark's literary design and Luke's plagiarism. So the next question is, naturally, what does Matthew's version of this story say? And I bet you can guess. I bet you know that Matthew will tie all this healing and ministry stuff to prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. And he does. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Matthew says this is all to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew proceeds to give the prophecy a little twist of his own. He doesn't exactly quote either the Hebrew text or the Greek Septuagint, but the gist is the same. In this prophecy, God is proclaiming his very great pleasure with the Messiah and with the Messiah's gentle determination to bring hope to all people. Here's what he says. This is my servant, the one I have chosen, the one I love, the one who delights my soul. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the nations. That word nations or people is one of our flag words. We always look to see which Greek word is being used. In this case, it is ethnos, the word meaning Gentiles. All people, all nations, not just Jews. Justice is at hand. So should we be afraid? Should we be trembling in our shoes? No, not at all. Because God is talking about the Messiah, about Jesus. He says, my servant will neither quarrel nor cry out, nor will he even raise his voice. He will not break what is bruised, nor snuff out what is flickering, until he leads justice to victory. 
The Messiah is coming with great good news. He's not coming to crush us, but to bring justice to all who are holding on by their fingernails. God says, in his name, the nations, all the people will hope. How utterly beautiful and tender. What great timing for Christmas, right? Um, Our Christmas season that we're in. God's good news is for us all. We do not need to be afraid of God. Jesus comes to help those who are bruised, those who are flickering, to help us make it. He comes to bring justice for us. He will set right all that has been wrong within us. And he will set right all the wrongs that have been done against us. The Messiah is the bearer of great good news and is real help in our time of need. So beautiful. Jesus turned many things on their head today. The Pharisees made everything into a burden. But Jesus kept showing how they got it all backwards and that everything they saw as a, quote, requirement was actually intended to be freeing, a blessing. So do we, quote, Pharisee ourselves? Could our lives be different? The study guide lists several possible topics for discussion. Skip the ones that are confusing. Talk about the ones that resonate with you. So this was um, such a great picture of Jesus, wasn't it? No. What did you all, what did you all see here? A lot of joy, a lot of joy. Beautifully done. Thank you. Mary shared a a great story with us. Um, Well, actually, two, two great points. Um, why don't you share them here, Mary, about the the study group and then your own personal journey? Okay, and bear with me on the redundancy, you all that were with me in the breakout group. But I'll try and do it quickly. But um, I shared with the group that in Sacramento, we were in a small faith community group that met on Wednesday. And um, it's a way to strengthen our spirituality and our understanding of the divine. And one of the gentlemen in the group was a deacon in the Catholic Church. And so we're talking about the rules in the Old Testament. And, and uh, so he got out quietly and left. We were meeting in their home. And he came back in and he had this tome of a book, this huge book. And so we're all kind of looking at Bob. And he said, um, do you know what this is? And uh, no. And he said, well, we rejected the 634, I hope I have the right number, Gail, um, rules in the um, Jewish tradition. Um, and this, now, we rejected it. Uh, and this is canon law for the Catholic Church. <laughs> so this is what we live by now. You know, this huge book of law dictated by the church. And... Um, uh, so that was a real eye opener, and um, and then the other thing was I was sharing with them that I, I was living in New Mexico and I was divorced, and um, 
I went to mass. I came back to my faith. I had a wonderful priest. I had stepped away from my faith for a while because all I heard was judgment and I was divorced and oh my God, you know, and um, uh, I just dropped dead gorgeous priest and a great pair of Calvin Kleins brought me back. I, that's, I'm being confused, but you know, whatever it takes, the Lord works in mysterious ways. <laughs> God knows what he's doing. Anyway. Bob Stark. Anyway, Bob brought me back to the faith. It was the most wonderful gift. Anyway, he said, I notice you don't go to communion, you know, and of course, we're a sacramental church. And, and I said, well, I can't because I'm divorced. You know, I, I believe in the Eucharist and I, I've always participated, but I'm divorced. I can't. He said, let's have breakfast, honey. Let's go. So we did. We went out and we talked about Vatican II, and I said, most people, if you know a Catholic, you know Vatican II. One of the gifts of Vatican II was the adoption of the document on primacy of conscience. And that teaches that all the law aside, all the things that we as men and women create to keep us in our lane in a faith tradition um, is erased if you embrace primacy of conscience. And that is the concept that in your quiet, in your solitude, in your resting place, when you are present in the presence of the divine, you live out the Christ in you. If you are honest with yourself and do good examination, um, if you let God, you will make the right decisions. You don't need somebody to tell you what to do. And primacy of conscience was such a gift. Now, what I didn't share with the group that I just remembered was, I remember looking at my priest friend and saying, Bob, why has the church not talked about this gift of Vatican II? I can tell you all the other things that came out of Vatican II. But why? And he looked at me and kind of crossed his eyes. He said, why do you think, Mary? And the point being that that would empower the laity, you know, we wouldn't maybe need the priest as much and we wouldn't need pen and all and we wouldn't, but we would be living in the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ, which is all we've been asked to do. That's what Jesus taught us over and over and over again. So, um, and we've used imagery in the, in these classes um, about the plumb line of the Holy Spirit being inside of each one of us. That's a another way of saying the same thing, that there is something innate in each of us that knows. Fully human, fully divine. We are made in his image or her image. I don't even put gender on my God. It's love. It's love. That's... Did you all, were there parts of the questions that stuck out at you that you talked about? Or did y'all just talk about everything else? We talked about the blue laws and the effect of the blue laws, you know, how that was supposed to bring us closer to God by we couldn't do anything. We couldn't buy diapers. We couldn't buy a car. You can't, you know, all the things you couldn't do, pantyhose, formula, and how ridiculous that was now to us. But we were also talking about the intended blessing of giving us an opportunity to step away from the everyday instead of 
just making everything so difficult for us. Yeah. I think Jesus was saying, don't focus on all the petty rules and regulations, but look at my works and uh, act with love. Yeah, I shared that um, even before my spiritual journey began in earnest when I was about 30, even before that, that the, the only thing really about the, the Bible that resonated with me was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and everything else. I, well, that was all that resonated. Later, later on, I learned that everything else was just extraneous. It is. Yeah. Beautiful. I think there's the tendency, even at Jesus's time, I mean, for humans, they just want to complicate things. They can't just let something be simple. Yeah. The one that really jumped out to me. Oh, go ahead, Woody. I think. No, I was, I was just going to say, maybe that's why that the, those two basic rules uh, resonated with me, is because they are so simple. Yeah. I don't know Sorry, why they have the rest of the book around it because that's what really is the meat and the crux of the situation. I think that the book, just to say, speak to that a little bit, I think that what the book is trying to convey is who God is in relation to us, not how we're supposed to act in relation to God. I think the book was in is intended to be a love letter to us from God mm -hmm. through all kinds of different cultures, all kind of mistakes, all kind of humanity. You know, the our part is just these two little pieces. It's it's almost like Abraham, you know, when God pro gave promises to Abraham, Abraham just God put him to sleep and said, you just lay down over here. I'm going to do the whole thing. And and um, that's. That's what Jesus is saying. He's got like, all you've got is just these two little pieces. And the rest of what I'm telling you is just all the wonderful things God wants to do for you. That's true. So, Marlene, you had something to say. Sorry. Yeah, I was I was gonna say the 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 one that really jumped out at me, and it's something that I've been learning <clears throat> over the last several years is the piece about judgment and justice where you know so many of the churches that I grew up in and the pastors that I sat under would talk about judgment day and the sheep and the goats and how you don't want to be a goat because you're going to be cast into the outer darkness and you know sort of you know terrifying us into being godly um where what you really stressed today the the whole idea of judgment and justice it, judgment is about bringing justice yes not punishment yes and part of the judgment part of the judgment is that those who have been harming others it's like their eyes are opened and they are able to see the harm they have done and to see themselves 
the way God sees them. So not just as this terrible person, but even I am loved by God. And it's a, it's a true come to Jesus moment. In every in, sense of that word, right? <laughs> yeah. in, in this sense of, I have done so much harm to people and, and I am, am sort of prostrated by that. I'm flattened because of the harm I've caused. But God even loves me. And, and that, that, um, the, um, that, that is where the judgment and the justice comes in. It's a, it's a, a purification as we see ourselves as who we were created to be. And, and however, the, the, the justice of from the harm that we've done to others you know they are they receive justice for being harmed but and then whatever the justice is to help change our hearts it's not being thrown into the lake of fire and burning for all eternity it's coming back into who we truly are yes it's all about healing and mercy and and the the people who have done us wrong are restored to justice, but not, you know, all, all we are restored from all the wrongs they've done us, but we're not restored by them being punished. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well said. Yeah. It's like it's a it's a very upside down concept even for Christians, which is a tragic, actually. Um, and, and, it, and it's all balled up, as you said, in words and stories that we're coming up to that we will talk about. But I'm trying to just lay down these real baseline words of Jesus, <laughs> layer by layer by layer, so that you're solidly grounded. The, the study of the Hebrew Bible gave us a real grounding in who God is. And now we're learning who Jesus is and how much Jesus is an extension of God within his humanity, in the, in the human expression of who he was, you know, he certainly, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe God and Jesus are the same thing. God, Jesus kept saying, I'm the father, father's me. We're all the same. And I'm, and I'm, uh, you know, kind of with Mary in the, in the sense that we are part of that dance. We were created to be part of all of that. We have much more to us than just this human body. And, and, what, and the more to us is eternal and lives in God. So this is just freeing yeah. things. Yeah. Question. Where did the whole lake of fire come from? Well, we're going to come up to that. But actually, okay. the, we're, it doesn't come till the very, 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 very end. In Revelation, which is a dream and is, you know, full of symbols and it's talked about specifically with respect to having to, to, to be, having been prepared for Satan, Hasatan, the accuser and, you know, a couple of his little okay. sidekicks, but, but, you know, it, 
It's like not something Jesus talks about ever. Okay. I was just curious because it's like I've heard that my whole life and it's like, well, Jesus never said anything about it. No. What we're we're coming from. So thank you. I mean, <laughs> but we will see Jesus talk about fire and you know, and we'll talk about each each time he says something that sounds like hell, we're gonna look at the word and see what he's talking about. And mm-hmm. and um and there are going to be places we get to, especially after Jesus' crucifixion, when we get into Paul and Peter and Jude and John, and they're all, you know, all the new, all the the, the Christians are out there trying to figure out what, what do we believe now? Um, there's going to be some things that don't like line right up. Okay. And so... Um, I'll warn you right now, the people that tell you this all fits in like a special little puzzle and all the pieces fit are, they're the kind of people that cheat when they make puzzles, you know, <laughs> they, they just force the pieces in. <laughs> you know how you can make a piece fit? That's, you know, I'm being flippant um, and I meant no disrespect to them, but I, I have to say, I see a lot of pieces out there that are that don't fit up. I see a lot of people trying to figure it out. And so we're going to come at it from that perspective and say, you know what? They might have figured it out. They might not have. Well, something that I noticed with your chart of, you know, especially the Sabbath rest, all the rules um, needing to be perfect. I feel like the burden that comes with all those three is, there's this guilt and shame when you, for whatever reason, don't do it instead of being there um, to help us, to grow us, to recover us mentally, physically, spiritually. It's just like this added layer of fear that when you don't abide by those things that you're overwhelmed with. And we hunger for that. It's no accident that the word sabbatical comes from Sabbath. You know, you you two are on a sabbatical. It's we hunger for that. We need that. Yeah. Um, well, I I was I was mentioning also what I had mentioned to you, Gail, before the Bible study started, that a lot of this topic of of making a blessing into a burden. Um, reminds me of that passage in Proverbs about the virtuous wife and um, that for so many of us Christians, as Christian women, um, this description of the virtuous woman is held up as this is the gold standard and you need to meet this. This is the ruler by which you will be assessed as to whether you are virtuous or not. When in the Jewish tradition, that passage is seen as a a song of praise that a husband sings to his wife. You are so wonderful. You are amazing. I am constantly impressed with you because you are, you have all these gifts and this is amazing. And it's a, and we have taken that affirmation and we have completely flipped it upside down and turned it into a burden. Yes. Yes. 
that I need to know as a woman in relationship. And I think this is the beauty of our God is that I'm not always virtuous. I'm not always, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like that particular passage, I go, oh, maybe I'm not singing that one. You know I, mean? <laughs> I think that hunger and that longing to return to that place is a wonderful Japanese koan. Show me your authentic face, the face you had before you were born. And I think that's the longing that Gail just talked about, that I don't need to be the virtuous one. <laughs> I can be the Magdalene as we used to paint her, and yet I am still given that same mercy, justice, and love. And I, that's, uh, yeah. It, it would be a wonderful exercise to take some time this week and sit down and write what God, your husband, be you male, female, or anywhere in between, what God as your lover would say to you in a letter like that. What, what would God, what does God just sit back and say, you are so amazing. You amaze me every day. I'm watching you and you're just amazing me every day. And this, these are the things I love about you. That's what God does. God doesn't sit, sit out there and say, oh, I messed up again. Kick for Mary. You know, that's, that's not how God sees us. Jesus was trying to tell him that. He said, just, you got to believe me, Jesus kept saying. I'm giving you good news. You got to believe it, though. And I think that message is fresh for us. Gail, I was thinking when Mary was talking about that, about today's not the day that I'm the virtuous woman. That's okay. And think about when you're loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, that maybe it's not their day that they're the virtuous person either. You know, that's exactly right. I was talking to somebody recently who who was saying, you know, I've been I've been so strong and I and I've been saying all these strong things and 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 now at, but but in this moment, I'm frightened. And and I was and and my response was, well. You can hold both those things together. It, those Both of those things can be true because all of our moments in, you know, our Hebrew pretzel time understanding, all of our moments are in this moment. And, and we learn to hold this paradox and the fact that two seemingly opposite things can be true about us in this moment. And and that's okay. That's okay. Somehow we're created like that. I just had that conversation with Gary this morning, Gail, um, and brought out an icon. When we talk about tradition, I have an icon that was given to me. And it's Mary and the child. And... I brought it out this morning and I put it next to me as we our session today. And it just 
is such an image of motherhood when we I was pregnant with my son at Christmas and thought I was going to have him on Christmas Day. And now I'm coming to grips that he's dying. And I'm trying to hold that paradox. And I have a strong faith, but it's not always where it needs to be when you live in the reality of the paradox. I, I think I shared in the group that a priest had said to me, I went on retreat and he said, Mary, don't forget. And he knew my son had been diagnosed. And he said, remember when you touch the wood of the crib, you touch the wood of the cross. When you touch the wood of the cross, you touch the wood of the crib. And that's that's what I want my faith to be. I want the divine revealed to me and the true reality of that, that we believe in a resurrected life. We, you know, and, um, but it's hard. It's not. It is. It's easy. And so today was just a gift. Each of you, I, the beauty of this group for me is, I just love hearing from each person. I mean, it just is such a richness. And um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. My mother and dad took me to many schools. I grew up military. And my mother and dad would always say to the new school and my new teacher, we just want you to know that Mary Patricia Bridget is highly verbal. Thank you. You know, the, the image that came to my mind as you were speaking, Mary, just now was of you with the icon and your memories and your thoughts and your wrestling with this and was of you weaving a nest, of you bringing pieces of string and pieces of color and pieces that are warm and weaving a nest that you as mother can rest in when your heart is shattered. That's beautiful. Thank you, Gail. image giving to a mother who doesn't and never has sewed on a button. So thank you for seeing that, <laughs> that possibility in me. Thank you. <laughs> oh, y'all are making me cry. So I, 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 let's uh, let's stop there. I love you so much. <laughs> These things are real that we're talking about. Carry each other in your hearts carry these thoughts in your hearts and I will see you the first Thursday in January. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.